The statements made in this podcast are meant to be taken strictly as opinion and not as statements of fact or evidence in the cases discussed. This episode of Scarlet contains detailed descriptions of sexual assault and desecration of human bodies. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. So, we're back. Episode <laughs> two of the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper. The third. The Bumblebutt. The Bumblebutt. And I know we say that jokingly, like we're making fun of him, and we are, but we, we want to acknowledge here at this moment that we appreciate the families of the victims, uh, because certainly what was about to ensue in Ed's life and the cruelty and the pain that he was going to bring upon his victims and their families is absolutely horrible. And that's something that, you know, when you watch interviews with Ed, he has a tendency to dismiss the things that he did and to minimize them. And that, again, as we talked a little in the first episode, was really where I became really disgusted with Ed. Because he would frequently talk about um, dehumanizing the victims by having sex with them or humiliated them. or he, he, I really wish he would have been, if he could expand on all the other things and the other elements of what he did, him minimizing it by not talking about it and acknowledging that there was something lustful about it. I mean, he, as we'll talk about a little later, it was more than murder. Oh, way more than murder. And that's the... Okay, so we're going to talk movies for a second. 1961, Psycho came out. Mm-hmm. What was it, 1975? I think it was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love that movie. More or less, both of those movies, they essentially attribute as Ed Gein being the inspiration for those movies. Correct. That is Correct. What I didn't realize going into Ed Kemper, all of his tendencies that were almost Gein-like, that he really, I had no idea he desecrated corpses the way that he did. Oh, yeah. I had no clue. I knew him as the guy who picked up co-eds as hitchhikers and killed them and then disposed of their bodies off the side of the road. I had no idea he did the unspeakable, horrendous, horrible things to them. It, it's almost as though he took inspiration, and I don't know that he even would have had the exposure to know to take inspiration from the likes of Hitchcock and Anthony Perkins in Psycho. If he could have been, if he knew that he was being Norman Bates-like and ultimately Ed Keen-like, but the the ties are there. His relationship with his mother is eerily similar. Right. A a deep hatred, but also inexplicable love that he couldn't let go of. Yeah, I mean, he was very torn. I don't know if he found inspiration in Ed Gein and, and the Norman Bates character in particular, but we know that he spent a lot of time between 15 years old and 21 years old been, he spent all of his time with, you know, mentally ill convicts. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's a, it's consistent over, you know, history that there are mother issues for most serial killers. Oh. In some way or another, it affected them. A hundred percent. And 
it, it is kind of weird that you can trace back to what a lot of people consider would be mommy issues mm-hmm. for those serial killers, particularly the ones who target women. Really, I mean, it's a lot of it traces back to their upbringing and their relationship with their mother. Oh, yeah. I was just really so taken aback by that because I, I, I went from being really fascinated by Ed Kemper from our conversation about Mindhunter and how he's portrayed, which is eerily accurate. Mm-hmm. The way that the actor portrays Ed in Mindhunter, his mannerisms, his tone, the way he speaks, it is dead on. Oh, yeah, he's great. I'm not sure he's as big as Ed, though. I think he may be a little smaller. He might be a little bit smaller. He's, he's, a, big dude. he's a big guy. Yeah, yeah. But he, he might be a little bit smaller. The biggest difference to me, based on the way the actor plays Ed Kemper versus the real man Ed Kemper, is I feel like the actor, the character Ed Kemper, is more genuine. He has a soft side to him that the real Ed Kemper likes to pretend that he has, but doesn't really. And there's there's almost like an innocence to the character Ed Kemper, almost to the point of I use this comparison to you, a Forrest Gump like quality. Like he's got. He this, wants you to think that he. Well, I think he's the, a sociopath. The the man Ed Kemper is the character Ed Kemper. I think has that softer side yeah. that the man doesn't. Agreed. The, the character Ed Kemper has the like. Jenny wants to bring him home and Lieutenant Dan wants you to have his back. But... (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I was expecting when I went into this is like this guy that couldn't control his impulsions and he had no control. He knew what was wrong, but he couldn't control himself. What I found was a sociopathic, sick, demented, horrible person who despite what he may have to say, really had full control over what he did and just didn't care, but wanted you to believe that he did. So back to Ed. Ed spent a year or two um, driving around with his gun, knife, handcuffs, so on and so on in his car, you know, really building up the courage to fleshing out his ultimate plan. I mean, obviously if he had these things in the car, he was thinking about it and he was thinking about it for a long time and it probably was his intention all along. Well, yeah, it was definitely his intention all along and he was, he was working up the courage to get to it, but he was also testing himself. Yeah. Trying to see like, how far can I go without going all the way? And he had a name for the people that he would pick up on his test runs, called him his little zapples. Oh, what is a zapple? I don't know what a zapple is. Ed's such a dork. He is a dork. It's probably some, like, genius word. Oh, okay. Well. With his 145 IQ. All right. I, um, all right. So here's Ed driving around town. He's in his, either a Ford Galaxy or a Plymouth Fury. We'll figure it out. But we have contradictory information on that one. One way or another. It was a very long car. It looked like a police, police cruiser. He had an A sticker on the back of his car, which gave him all full access to the University of California parking lots. Then even at one point after the killing started um, on the news, it was told to people to make sure to look out and, and only communicate with cars and get near cars that had the A sticker. So he was already, you know, he already had what he needed to, to sort of sell these folks into believing that he was trustworthy. Because keep in mind, back at the time at, in Santa Cruz... As we mentioned in the last episode, 
he he was one of three serial killers at the time. Mm-hmm. So this was a very unsafe area. So the hope was that if you saw someone with the UC Santa Cruz parking sticker attached to it, you would at least be safe. Yeah, they were supposed to be there. Right. So moving up to his final entry into the world of actual serial killing, he picks up um, a ride, or he picks up two students, two Fresno State students, Marion Pesci and... Anita Lucasa, I believe is the pronunciation. And truly, we were actually just talking about this before we started recording. We really do want to give true honor to the victims here. This is very serious. I do apologize if we mispronounce anyone's name. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Marianne Pesci, Pesky, Anita. I think, it, like I said, I think it's Lucesa, Lucesa. Uh, apologies, but really, they, they deserve their due. I'm truly not trying to make light out of this in any way. Absolutely not. Uh, so the families reported the girls missing. They get in the car with Ed. Ed speaks eloquently again about these murders. Essentially, he's got a car that, if I'm not mistaken, is a two-door, which means that mm-hmm. he's That's got right. to... So he's got... Once he gets a girl in the backseat, she can't get out. There's no way for her to move. The second girl who gets in... And he frequently picked up two people at a time, right. which I thought was really interesting. Now, granted, he's a big guy, but it's it takes a lot of work to subdue two people at once. Now, Definitely. one of them was in the back seat, so granted, they couldn't get out of the car, but you had an opportunity with a person who was in the passenger seat to certainly escape. Ed thought of this, and the way that Ed stopped this from happening was that once the girl, the second girl would get in the car in the passenger seat, he would reach over her, her with his big giant arm, and he had a piece of or a chapstick in his hand, and he would hide it underneath his fingers, and he would reach over her and say, oh, your door's not closed. And when he did that, he would drop the piece of chapstick into the door handle, so ultimately locking the car behind her so that she could not get out. So he's got two women now locked in the car. It's it's very smart. I had a smirk on my face because it is, it's a super smart move. He, he had a, this is a person who tested this. He thought about it through all the way through. He would have never got caught if he didn't want to. No, no. And, And he escaped a few times by the skin of his teeth, but he knew how to play the game because man, he had everything planned out. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were times where he would get pulled over because certainly now you've got two women who were missing. Eventually, on August 15th of that that year, a female head was discovered in the woods near Santa Cruz, and it was later identified as Anita Pesci's. Um, So now, red alert to the police there and everybody in town. It's a small town. Um, They've already got some issues with serial killers. There's this is probably overlapping with some of the other murders. I'm sure it probably is. With no skill from the FBI or from the police department and understanding of what serial killers actually methodology similarities. It's just a bunch of murders. Well, and everything that he learned while he was locked up in a Tescadero in the mental health facility, he learned that from the serial rapists. Yeah. So the way that ultimately his first two kills of Marianne and Anita went down, he locked Anita in the trunk of his car while he strangled Marianne. And speaking to his uncomfortableness around women, 
while he was trying to get leverage on Marianne, he accidentally brushed his hand up against her breast. And actually, it took him out of the moment, and he felt really uncomfortable about that. And he later confessed that he even said, whoops, I'm sorry. And for a split second, he went back from, as we mentioned before, he says that he has this tulpa, there's someone else in his mind that's making these decisions for him. He jumped back from murder ed to innocent, nice guy, uncomfortable around women ed, and then immediately jumped back into murder ed and strangled him. Mm, you believe that? I don't know if I believe that. I I think he was just terrified of women and them judging him, so he couldn't feel close to them until they were dead. That I don't disagree with that, but I I believe that him brushing his hand up against her breast made him very uncomfortable. Yeah, she wasn't dead. Well, she wasn't dead, but that was so outside of the norm and uncomfortable. He didn't know how to react to that. Well, that's what's crazy about it. This was after he was engaged to someone. Exactly. I know, I know. Really I, strange. But engaged I would love to, to know more about that fiancé, by the way. Well, but uh, yeah, exactly. Engaged to a 16-year-old girl. So we don't know what their engagement was like. Was it a true relationship? Was this a girl that was a high school girl that was really just maybe like a girl on the side that he was more infatuated with and called it an engagement? This is, this is fairly uh, speculating. But if he knew that he really didn't like women that way, why would he even bother having a fiancé? You think he was trying? No, I think he. I think so. I think oh. he did like women that way. He was just so uncomfortable because he would even later go on to say that he almost had a blockage. He would say he was not physically impotent, but he felt mentally impotent. Hmm. He couldn't bring himself mentally to get to that point. He wanted to. His body was telling him to. But he himself could not bring himself to. Disgusted him. Yes. Yeah, he's definitely got some issues. We do not find Luchez's remains ever. Right. Um, Kemper would later explain that he stabbed and strangled Pesci before stabbing Luchez as well. Right. And, and what's really fascinating about that is after the first death, after he went back to pick Anita up from inside the trunk of the car, she noticed that Ed had some blood on his arms because Marianne had scratched his arms in mm -hmm. self-defense. Yep. I believe it was actually on his face. And Ed said to uh, Anita that, that that Marianne had gotten fresh with him, so he had to hit her, and so she clawed back at him, I believe is what it was. So as the girl's laying in the trunk, he's explaining this to her. Yes, because he's telling her, I'm not going to hurt you. As long as you cooperate with me, nothing's going to happen to you. The only reason your other friend got angry and there's blood is because she raised her mouth to me, essentially. Hmm, interesting. But then, of course, we all fully know what happened. Yep. As you said, remains were found, particularly uh, Mary and Skull was found in the mountains, but none of Alita, Anita's remains were ever found. We do know, based on what Ed says, that after the murders, he brought the bodies back to his apartment. He removed their heads and their hands, apparently because those were um, things that he knew would tie the bodies to, you know, and be able to be identified. Um, he also reportedly engaged in sexual activity with their corpses. He defiled them. He was angry with them, and he was going to take it out on them. He, he 
did more than that, though. He, he, I mean, he took photographs of them mm -hmm. to keep as trophies. He kept the corpses for many days. Oh, this was in his in his closet under his bed. They were decomposing. He had sex with them for multiple days as they continued to decompose. And I kind of jumping back to where I started with before about how fascinated, in really the worst possible way, really horrified I was learning about all of this. This reminds me of it's Dahmer like pre Jeffrey Dahmer. Except by the for the eating part. Uh, no, he actually did confess to eating. He would ultimately retract that later on, but he did under... I'll talk about it a little bit. But after he confessed and was arrested, he did admit that he would skin and eat their flesh. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So, it is very Ed Gein-like. Yeah, it's very Ed Gein, Jeffrey Dahmer. We mentioned at the, the top of the last episode how we got into really liking this. Both of us, I think, on our commutes to work, pretty much only listen to murder podcasts. I don't want to say I've become desensitized to it, but I've heard a lot of stuff. The only one I've ever had to turn off is Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, that may be because it's also from my hometown, and so <laughs> my mom has a tie to Ed Gein. There's a ton of like Jeffrey Dahmer murderers from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the only one I had to turn off because I was so disgusted by the details. And I started to feel a little bit that way about Ed Kemper. I had no idea he was at that level. He was. But what's different about Ed than Dahmer is that Dahmer was outwardly antagonistic. Ed would have found that rude. Oh, Ed was very polite, and yeah. he would tell you if you were being rude, and he would correct you Yeah, and enforce his proper manners on you. Oh, absolutely. Even when he spoke about what he did, he spoke appropriately, you know? I mean, again, he distanced himself from the, the horrible things that he did to these people. And, he, and there was one time, I think, he in one of his interviews where he was explaining how he was going to... He had one of the co-eds, you know, again, he had to somehow restrain both of them. He, one of them was talking and he, um, one of them offended him and he essentially told the, the person he was, who was interviewing him that she made him do it. That essentially she went and got herself murdered. Yes. And I'm she like, pinned the blame, he pinned the blame on the victim. She shouldn't have, she shouldn't have made me mad. She should have, you know, just gone with it. But at the end of the day, we knew he was going to kill her anyway. What, oh, of course. No matter what she no. did. Yeah. No, that, he made up that his mind a long time ago before yeah. she ever made him mad. Absolutely. But that sounds like something that would have come from Clarno. That she would yeah. blame Ed for his punishment. Oh, of course. She blamed Ed for not having sex with people, you know, and you ran off my husband. And, I mean, everything oh, about Clarno's right. life. She did blame him for her not having sex life. Yeah. I mean, and then he was an adult when that happened. But you can only imagine the things right. that this woman probably said to him. No. Even as a child. A very large child, but a child. Again, this is his first foray into murder. He's got... Yeah, his first foray into murder since his release from Atascadero after killing his grandparents. Agreed. As a co-ed killer, as per the, se. Yes, this is the yeah. when he became the co-ed killer. Right. Uh, co-ed butcher, co-ed killer. He called himself many different things. So now, moving on, August 15th, they find the head... They know there's a problem. They've got already got multiple problems, but at this point, Santa Cruz does not know that this is more than one person. No, and, and this is three months later. The, the murders took place on May 7th, 1972. So for three months, 
two women were missing, and three months later, they found the remains or partial remains of only one. So about a month after they found the partial remains of the the, the co-eds, a, he picked up another, a 15-year-old Aiko Ku, who was evidently a baller, ballet dancer taking a ballet class. Again, another hitchhiker. Folks, mm-hmm. I don't know what any point in, in the world that everybody ever thought of hitchhiking was a good idea, but... I would suggest against it. I think it's illegal now in some states, but I, evidently there was a time where it was cool and everybody was fine with it. Well, I, I, yeah, actually, I was kind of going to mention, I mean, I was always brought up that hitchhiking is akin to committing a serious crime and that no way, no how, you will never, ever do it. Yeah. Not because it is a crime, but because the risk is so ridiculously out there. And I feel like... The 60s, particularly in probably Northern California, was a great area for it. Because in Northern California, it can be very sparse. You've got your Bay Area, you've got your Santa Cruz, your Santa Clara's, your San Jose, your San Francisco, your Sacramento. But there's a lot of dense area. You've got Fresno, that's in the Central Valley. But then there's a lot of nothing out there. Oh, yeah. So in order for people to get from one point to the other... And wanting to be in the hippie culture, particularly in the 60s, hitchhiking was very popular. Mm-hmm. And I think through Ed Kemper and his contemporaries and the other serial killers, that's where hitchhiking really kind of went downhill. All right. So moving on, uh, 15-year-old Aiko Ku met the same fate as Pesci and Lucessa, and ultimately Ed systematically, again... You know, cut her body up into pieces. Well, first actually killed her by uh, shooting it. She, uh, he first killed her by pulling a gun on mm-hmm. her. And then dismembering her. But this story is... it's This one might be the most fascinating one to me. Because it, there's a lot of similarities here. There are a lot of parallels. Iko was 15. Ed was 15 when he committed his first murders. Ed was a outwardly, albeit weird, very nice guy. He wanted to trust people. He built trust in other people. Aiko is 15 years old. And seeing her as prey, knowing his ability to manipulate, manipulated Aiko. Ed got out of the car. And as you mentioned previously about his process of reaching across on the car door and dropping in chapstick so that way the passenger was locked in and unable to get out. Ed, in his effort to try and kill her, got out of the car, left the keys in the car, locked the driver's side door, walked over to Iko to unlock the door, but realized he was locked out of his own car. <laughs> so it's fu- It's funny, but this is where it becomes really tragic. Oh. He shifts from kidnapper and murderer to this poor innocent guy who is just trying to help her. When did he shift that to that? When he convinces her to unlock the door to let him back in. She had no idea. She had no idea. Is this his story? He tells the story. She's he obviously tells, he dead. He tells this so. story. Yes. Oh, he's an idiot. Well, I feel. I mean, socially though, I mean, 
well, here's what I would say is when Ed tells a story like that, that clearly, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's not above talking about and being vulnerable about himself. He does admittedly, um, talk about how he wasn't good with women and how he was socially awkward and how he was uncomfortable and how he just didn't know how to, to facilitate that kind of relationship. But then he turns on this innocent charm to a certain extent that he's able to manipulate this woman who, this girl, she's 15. She's not even a, a woman yet. She has to realize at this point there's something wrong because Ed essentially had a favorite place that he liked to take his victims off the side of the road, a place that he found when he was working for the Department of Transportation. Mm, not convenient. Right. So she had to know this was not the destination that she was going. This man pulled off to the side of the road, got out of the car, locked himself out. <laughs> I don't know if she knew how to drive. She may not have. Maybe that's why she was hitchhiking. But she had the perfect opportunity. She had the keys. She could have jumped into the driver's seat and taken off on her own or just stayed there. In her eyes, she was still fine. She was just helping this guy out. But that's Why did he say he got out of the car? Because he had to go out to let her out. Of the middle... Out where? They're in the middle of nowhere. He he wasn't going to kill her in the car if he was going to shoot her. Why would she believe that? Why would... What was the... What would... What was she believing that he... Why he stopped? That's my point. Is at that point, she would have had to know that there was something wrong that he stopped and to not Mm. trust him. And so she immediately went from... He went from losing her trust to having her in panic mode to then regaining it by convincing her if you let me back in nothing's gonna happen to you and this innocent 15 year old girl ultimately believed him wow and then ultimately they found her where did Uh, they find her body i well he disposed of her uh just like they did the other ones uh, in the mountains. I don't know if they ever... Uh, I actually don't know if they ever did find her. If they did, it wasn't for a long time after because her family put out flyers and put out a missing persons call, uh, and ultimately they went unfounded. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the body was ever found, but if it was found, it was well after the fact. Mm-hmm. Now, let's take a moment here because a lot of people say... Why would you get in the car with a guy like this? But I think we have to take a step back and then also think about the videos that we've seen with Ed and his interviews. When Ed was younger and he was thinner, um, he wasn't a bad-looking guy. You know, this is where I, I, I get a little crazy. This is where I get a little uncomfortable because I look at Ed and I think of back in that time, and he wasn't a terrible looking guy. No, he wasn't. So I think about me, Sonia, if I would have been alive and in 15 to 18 years old around that time, knowing myself and the kind of men I'm attracted to, and I have a bit, I have weird taste in the men I'm attracted to. I mean, there's your standard hot guy. Fine. Whatever. Um, I'm not traditionally attracted to those guys. My guy, back in the day when I was a teenager, I was attracted to a couple of people. I was attracted to John Goodman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. John Goodman and what? Uh, back then it would have probably been Roseanne and whatever movie he was in early Really? On. Yeah. And uh, then Howie Mandel. 
I love Tally Mundi. I thought he was super hot. Uh, yeah, we've had this conversation. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's the funny thing or what, but if you think about John Goodman and that kind of person, I would have probably been attracted to Ed. I'm more of a Thor type of person. I know you are. We'll have that story. Save that story. That's too good of a story to tell right now, but I get it. And he's, yes, he's, he's attractive. But as far as people I would want to spend time with, I could see myself wanting to spend time with Ed. And I could see myself wanting to talk to Ed as the person that he ex- exposes himself to be in the interviews. Like, oh, sure. And then... There's a lot to want to talk to Ed about. That, but I would be attracted to Ed. Like, that's so, what's so messed he, up. If, Ed, if he didn't talk about murdering people, I would probably be fascinated by him and want to talk to him. And probably would be sexually attracted to him. He's the kind of guy I'd go out with. Even before you start talking to him, just based on looks alone. Yes. Okay. A hundred percent. He was not a terrible looking guy. He wasn't. He... So back, uh, back to me being attracted to Ed Kemper, um, which is, you know, disturbing. But at the same time, it, I, I mean, again, you know, it wouldn't have taken much to trust him. He endeared himself to people and he was moderately attractive, which I think is the real shame here because, you know, his mother made him believe certain things about himself that I don't think were actually true. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he had some tendencies if he's cutting up cats. Uh, but but she told him in no uncertain terms, no woman would ever love him. He was too unattractive. He was unlovable. He wasn't deserving of a woman's love. And that's where I started to get disturbed because I just now, looking at you, watching you say that, said, oh, poor Ed. And then again. Yeah. Okay. There you go. And then you buy into it. It's awful. Well, it is. Like not to mention again, like I said, is I'm a little disturbed with myself because if I had met Ed and I would have known him and what he did, I would probably like him and I would probably think he was attractive. And so I, that's where I think that, you know, people are so perplexed by these girls getting in the car with him, but he wasn't a bad looking guy. No. And for 1970, he was okay. And he sure. was tall, nothing wrong with that. You know, he had a calm voice. Um, You know, he didn't scream serial killer. No, no, he definitely didn't. He actually would bait people into talking about it to see if they would be suspicious of him at all. And that goes back to when he went to the jury room, the bar across the street from the courthouse. He would try to get close to the police officers just to see if they had any suspicions that he might be one of their suspects. Well, I think that's a really good point because we also know that when Ed would talk to the co-eds who were in the car with him, mm-hmm. and there were many co-eds that he had in the car with him, singles and individ- individuals as well as doubles, as far as two people being in the car at once, and he would he would frequently have conversations with them, and there were many of them that he didn't murder. Well, there were he over the course of his spree and leading up to it, there were hundreds of women that he picked up off the side of the road. How would you like to be one of those women and be like, hey, oh, I dodged that bullet? No kidding. But he he went on to say that the key that would guarantee that they would survive is if they would start talking about the murders that were happening around town. Yeah. For some reason, he was like, when they heard them start talking about that, he, he said, I just couldn't kill them then. Yeah. And he didn't really elaborate on that, and no. I don't know why that was. Maybe he, he thought that they were, you know, they admired that. I, I don't know. He, I don't know what so in the world. He was so matter of fact. I almost felt like it was like, well, shoot, now they know, so I can't let them know for sure. I guess. They know I don't, what? I don't know. They know that he's not, or, he, I mean, I don't and think they yeah, have any I inclination. I, I agree. I, I, it's I don't cuckoo. know. The guy, he is. He's, oh, he's an anomaly. Yeah, he definitely... 
definitely had a lot to say. So after Aikoku's death, um, you know, Ed takes to the streets again. Aiko was killed around September 1972. In January 1973, Ed continued. Picked up hitchhiker Cindy Shaw, whom he shot and killed. While then he proceeded to take Cindy's body to his house while his mother was out, and he hid the body in his room. He dismembered her. He had sex with her, defiled her, humiliated her, threw the body parts into the ocean. Well, he uh, <laughs> he dismembered and decapitated her in his mother's bathtub. And all of this, I think, is leading up to what would become what he felt his grand finale. He keeps getting closer to his mother, mm. taunting his mother to a certain extent. And he's building up and getting closer. And in the next couple, we'll see that it comes really to a crescendo before the big ending. Sure. Which, of course, ends up with his mother. So poor Cindy Shaw, again, he threw her body parts into the ocean. He also decapitated her and he buried her head in his mother's backyard underneath his mother's window looking up at her so because he said that he oh, his mother always wanted people to look up to her always wanted people to look up to her that's so, so she funny he's such a he also such a guy he, the way that he dismember her he referred to putting the pieces back together would be like a macabre jigsaw puzzle <sighs> These are the times where I hate Ed because when I, he I talks about what he did in those terms, it's so offensive. It is. It's it's, it's his, so dismissive. It's so cold and it's yeah, dismissive is the right word for that. But if he had any remorse, he wouldn't say things like no, that. No, exactly. I agree. Because at least the I mean, yeah, the victims are dead, but my God, have a little respect for the families. Right. I mean, that's the part that I find really offensive. Even when he walked into trial later, which you know, obviously we all know he confessed, he was Waving at people, and he was, you know, hey, you know, and t- I, it went unbelievable, completely disrespectful. If you were in that audience and you were one of the victim's families, I mean, uh, the things that those people had to look at and hear and hear him talk about and be endeared. And to be quite honest with you, you know, we'll talk a little later about it, but become friends with a couple of FBI agents mm-hmm. that he helps really understand the mind of a serial killer. They liked him. Oh, they really liked him. This speaks to what I mentioned in the last episode about how I feel like he rehearsed all of this in his mind. So when we were talking about finding our voice, I feel like he already had his voice. And to say, to use the phrase, piece together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle, that's not something that comes up casually in conversation. He practiced those words. He thought about how he wanted to say that. It wasn't just a whim that's what came out. He thought about it because he was cold and calculating, and he wasn't thinking one bit about what that meant to the deceased and the victim's family. He was always thinking about, how can I be with words? How can I tell this story and paint a picture about me? How's it going to benefit him? Yes. Exactly. All right, so after Cindy Shaw, um, February... So we've got a one-month time period between when Cindy is killed and then in 1973, February 5th, he uses campus parking stickers his mother had given him to facilitate another double murder. And this he would attribute to he was driven to murder because of a heated argument he had with his mom. Now, of course, 
he had plenty of other murders that weren't because of a heated argument, but he would use an excuse from that evening as to why he had to, he felt like he had to go out hunting, as he would describe it. Yeah. So he drove to the university where he offered to pick up a couple of students, Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. Shortly after picking them up, he shot the two young women, then drove past the campus security at the gates with the two mortally wounded women in the car. Now, I'm assuming that they were mortally wounded and they weren't flailing and they weren't bleeding, or else I would like to think someone would have noticed. I would think so. But also driving through campus gates, I don't know when the last time you were on a college campus was, they're not looking into the car. They're not investigating. Unless someone is outwardly making a gesture, chances are he flashed his badge, Ed probably flashed his badge, they opened the gate, he drove away. Certainly he was taking a risk, but campus security is... We're not talking about the SWAT team here. And honestly, when we say gates, we probably aren't talking about a gate that goes up and down or anything that's prohibiting people from coming in and out. Probably not. It's probably just, you know, a couple of things on the side of the road yep. that acknowledge that you're going through something. Exactly. So I really doubt it was keeping anybody out, clearly. Um, after the after the murders, Kemper decapitated his victims. Um, he... In the car. While they were still in the car, he beheaded them. Yeah. And then he removed the bullets from the head because he had the good sense to do that. Um, and he disposed of their parts in different nice locations. Gentlemen, Here's where it's leading up to... He, at this point, he he's really almost... He's taunting his mom because he brought their headless corpses into his mom's house again to have sex with them. He dis, uh, dismembered the bodies inside the house again. And I learned a new word, sadly. What he was doing with all of them it was called irrimatio. Have you ever heard that term? What in the what is that? <laughs> so we say that what? one more time. Irrimatio. Irrimatio. Uh huh. It sounds like a term that comes from written music. That is not even remotely close to what it means. Okay. Well, I guessed. So uh, without trying to get too graphic here. Oh, please get graphic. Oh, we're gonna Seriously? get we're gonna get graphic. So we we know what fellatio is. Yes. Uh-huh. Irimatio is the same act, but forcefully doing it on an unwilling victim, or in this case, head. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Really? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's essentially fellatio to someone who's unwilling and, in this case, a head or corpse. Oh. Uh-huh. Then the word came up several times, and I was afraid to Google it, and I did, and I, I'm a, I should probably delete my history now. Okay. Can we get a little graphic for a moment? Because I have questions. So <laughs> About your ratio? I'm probably mispronouncing that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the sexual acts that he, you know, performed on the bodies and the head. Did he actually perform them on the mouth or did he actually use their neck? And I know that sounds really gross. I think it was both. There's a thing about the neck and some kind of suction dealio that happens when people have sex with that. It's gross. Well, well, that's definitely gross. That's horrifying. I I mean, if you think about it, strictly physiologically speaking, depending on where you would decapitate someone, after you beheaded them, the the throat and the esophagus, it 
granted you're disconnected from the spinal column at this point so it doesn't have the muscular impulses but it has that natural stretching and suction ability yeah. that's used to inhale and to swallow food and yes. swallow drinks so maybe so by the way this is where i get pissed off at ed because I really have a problem with him having sex with the bodies after yeah, the fact. Sure. Now, I do too. Granted, That's the part that disturbs me the most. Well, it throws off my whole thinking when he talks about how he was only doing it. He was driven by this rage for his mother. No bullshit, because he was enjoying this. Well, he was totally enjoying it. And he said this was the only way that he could have sexual gratification and be satisfied sexually. Yeah. So no, no. I think these are different. So when he says, oh, I murdered her because and I built this up and oh, it was all because of my mom. No, actually, I think it was because you wanted to have sex with people and it was the only way you could control them. Uh, he, yes, he, he would say the reason he did that is the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in a girl's body without the head. <sighs> Who would he say that to? That's disgusting. <laughs> An interview? He's which... so proud of it. It's so disgusting. He is. This is where I hate Ed. Uh, yes. So remember when I said I would be attracted to Ed and even, you know... I I'm completely aware. This is the moment where I turn on myself and go, oh, okay, that's nope, disgusting. Bad. But I could see myself falling for it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Ed Kemper is a, a, is a killer. He is a killer. He's a mutilator. I don't buy that this was driven because of the rage with his mom. I do think that because he this was the way that he found sexual gratification and the way to control women. But to me, I think that's just an excuse. The, the fact that Ed is a killer is the least disturbing part of it. I agree. It, it's bad. Of course it's bad. Murdering someone is terrible, but the desecration of the bodies afterwards. Yes. If I was sitting in that courtroom with one of those, as one of those victims' families, I would have probably been, I mean, I'm certainly not fine hearing how they were murdered, but hearing how they were desecrated, I think that's the part where they just lost it. I would agree with that. Even the, so the sheriff, even the, the people, the investigators, this was... For some of those people, this was the worst thing they'd ever seen. Understandably a rotting, so. A rotting head. Three months in, yeah, yeah. in the freaking woods. Of course. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, you No, know, 100%. It, I mean, I was, the documentary I was watching, that Kemper on Kemper, I, thought, I found that really fascinating. because It, it also was really included, fascinating. It's a great documentary to check out. Yeah. It includes uh, John Douglas and his counterpart, wrestler, who really, wrestler, wrestler. I'm not I don't sure remember. Which, but... The two guys who essentially created this and studied Kemper and created some categorization yes. around how we understand serial killers the and it helped them. They're the basis for the characters on Mindhunter. Exactly. And their counterpart, who is a real person, I think it's Anita Bur Cindy Burgess. Um, Bur Burgess is her last name. And she was the doctor. Um, also portrayed as one of the characters in Mindhunters, but she and they created a survey, and I think it was 57 pages, and they would have 
when they were studying the different serial killers and talking to them about their crimes, they would have them do the survey so that they could have something that was consistent across the board for all the different people they were talking to. And this is how they determined, um, you know, the, the triads and how they could associate some of these, these things and these people, you know, organized and non-organized killers, um, you know, all the, the different categories in which a killer would be killing, you know, whether it would be driven by monetary, would it be driven by psychosis? Would it be driven by passion? There are a lot of different reasons why people kill. Um, and some of them could overlap certainly, but I think this survey was really, really interesting. I don't know where that data lives. I am going to read the book that they put out, uh-huh. um, which I thought was really interesting and, and still very well read today. I mean, I think it's a textbook for you know, forensics to study this. Okay. So now we're, uh, we're, we're to Ed's again, the crescendo. His crescendo. Yeah. This is where he appears to have reached his limit when it comes to his mother. He has created a situation where he has killed many women. He's tested his methodologies. I don't think there was ever intention that he would use any of these methodologies on his mother, by the way. I just think he was building up the courage to make it happen. So in April of 1973, this is when he essentially um, commits his last two murders. So, okay, before we actually jump into the murders, I want to address the date on here. Because so many weird things have happened. April 20th, 1973. I'm not even going to get into the 420, April 20th, 420-ness of it. I don't even know if 420 existed back in the day. This was like peak hippie era. Of course it existed back in the day. I guess. It just depends on what you think 420 actually came, where it, where it started. Okay. That's I, another, that's another. We're not going to get into that right yeah. now. All right. But anyway, so April 20th. I'm no expert, wink, wink. Uh, Well-documented Hitler's birthday. No. Of course. 420? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for ruining 420 for me. Yeesh. Uh, April 20th, the Columbine shootings. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yes. I think there was something else, maybe about, like, Napoleon, some other, like, dictator or something. There's an April 20th tie to. Oh, God. And now, Ed Kemper's big finale. (laughs) Everyone everyone talks about Friday the 13th or Halloween. (laughs) April 20th. There is a weird tie there. I guess. So, on Good Friday... Fred went over to his mom's house. They apparently... I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm thinking of... (laughs) I'm thinking of Friday the 13th. (laughs) So on Good Friday, Ed went over to his mom's house. Evidently, they had an argument. Um, Enough to to turn Ed, you know, and and just push him over the edge. This is when he realizes he has no choice. He's got to kill his mother. It wasn't so much an argument. It was actually... Ed came home... His mother was in bed reading, like many people do before they go to sleep. He went in, he sat down at the end of his mother's bed, and she said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. <laughs> and, uh, Ed's had it. He's and like, that was it. And Ed replied, you. <laughs> no, good night. And this is when, in the interviews, Ed... Gets emotional. He gets very emotional. And he says, at that point, <laughs> I knew I was going to murder her. 
And he was He's not from the south. He was right. He's talking with a drawl. <laughs> That's me talking to Ed Kemper. He was sad. He was visibly he, he was sad. sad. And this goes. This harkens back to our conversation before. What is he? Was that genuine? What, or or was he playing the people that were interviewing him? Was he playing the investigators and the FBI forensic analysts and the police officers? Or is this a man? really to a certain extent a man child who still had love for his mother and had difficulty reconciling it she was still a young woman she was only 52 years old so hmm. he was still only in his young to mid-20s at this point also yeah. so he's a young man who as we discussed at length had a very rough childhood had his adolescence and teenage years taken away from him after he killed his grandparents. He never reconciled with his mom. So is this someone who really truly feels a longing and love for his mom that he could never reconcile with? Or is this a cold-blooded sociopath who is a master manipulator and is doing this for the cameras that he is so adeptly aware are focused right on him? I would love to think... That if you have two people like John Douglas and his counterpart, and they adamantly say that they do not believe that Ed would have done any of this mm -hmm. if his mother hadn't treated him the way that she did, and he was sitting with them in front of them communicating like this, I would hope that they would know that he was playing them or not. I would hope they would know. Because they adamantly suggest that he was a nice guy with the exception of this one flaw. Mm -hmm. Big flaw. Oh, that's a big one. But he was driven to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm not saying that they dismissed it because we all know what he did and he's paying for it. Mm -hmm. But they really firmly believe that. And I find that really interesting because I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think that Ed had to have something in him to allow him to do this. Yeah, for sure. I, I... Well, I can't even, like, kill something. I mean, seriously, I just, we, you have to... Well, I brought up nature versus nurture in part one, and this gets right back to it, because you're right, the FBI forensic analysts, they are, they are steadfast. This is an innocent man who is a product of his upbringing, and had it not been for the nature of his relationship with his mother, he would have been a highly intelligent probably very successful adult. I get it, but isn't that what you can say about most serial killers? Is that if they would have grown up in the right environment and this, they wouldn't have had this these tendencies fostered, that they would have also... Charles Manson, if he didn't grow up with a prostitute mother, and if he didn't... I mean, but I think there's everybody right. grows up like... I sure. mean, you can't... Uh, yeah, the, well, it's... Because everybody starts as a child, so you have... I mean, you can't just say Ed's like that because he can, he can speak eloquently. No, no, I, I agree. Well, I agree, and I can't speak for what the FBI investigators were thinking. But I think there are some. They people, perceived him as a good guy. They totally they perceived did. him as they, a normal person. They almost an perceived him citizen. as a friend. Yes. Yeah. No. 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 I know. So, who knows what they thought? But these are men who are very intelligent. I mean, I that this is the part that throws me because I would say to you, I would agree with you that he's manipulating. But God, I would like to think somebody would know that and who was sitting right in front of him. They spent a lot of time with him. They really did a lot of time with him. And I'm not sure, but I'm I'm 
I'm, I would almost assume he's taken a couple of polygraph tests. So they would have to know that he would have been lying because he's passing the test, but they know that he did it. But he potentially, and that's something that will come up actually a little, kind of, not quite polygraph, but I'll talk about it after he, he goes to prison. Real quick, I want to jump back before we get into the myrtle, murder of Clarnell, which is probably the most heinous, if you can believe that, to date. But there was a an opportunity. The police had a shot at Ed before they knew that he was the co-ed killer. He was... I think they knew that... A, well, I think they had a shot at him a couple times because they got they pulled him over for having a gun in his car, too. They, they pulled it... Well, first, they, they pulled him over a few times. They pulled him over one time when it was... Uh, I think it might have been after the Cindy Shaw murder. It was after one of the murders. He had the victim in the trunk of his car, and he had a taillight out. That was essentially a defensive thing. Either the victim blew out the tail light when she was trying to fight off, or he did that when he was wrestling with the victim, something like that. He was pulled over, and the officer pulled him over. He talked his way out of a ticket, mm -hmm. essentially said, I'll get it fixed. He was allowed to go. He was pulled over with a gun, right? And But... He was pulled over for what? He, they found the gun in I'm the not, car. So that's what I'm not sure about. But I think that I think what we might be doing is conflating what I'm about to get to, which is he was starting to raise flags. And I, I think it may have been in like when the, the jury room, when he was communicating with the police and trying to befriend the police and being that friendly nuisance, the officers decided to look into Ed Kemper. And they looked into... you know why? Uh, yes. So, kind of. Uh, I think just... I, I don't know why they looked into him exactly. If it was... He was just kind of a weird guy or something. But they went into the gun registry and saw that he had a, uh, a gun registered to him, which should be no big deal because the murders of his grandparents were expunged from the record. Correct. But at the same time... They found his record, which no computers back at the time, so it was all on paper. Essentially, the information was crossed out. It was redacted, right. It was redacted, but it was still there. Mm. So even though it was expunged from his record, legally he wasn't allowed to own a gun. Mm. So they sent a police officer to get the gun from Ed Kemper, and this may have been at a time when he, I think, also he had a victim in the car with him. Mm -hmm. The officer comes up to Ed. He's in his mother's driveway in the car. Officer's walking up to him. Ed's getting real nervous. He's starting to panic. He's getting sweaty. He's got a gun under the seat of his car, ready to essentially attack if he has to. The officer asks him to get out of the car. He wants to ask him a couple questions. Ed turns on the charm. He becomes super nice guy, Ed Kemper, invites him into the home and takes a big risk here because he has a lot of guns. Yeah, yeah. And big guns. Big guns. Yeah. And so the officer essentially says, hey, you know, we realized, we saw your name on the gun registry. You're not supposed to have a gun. And Ed says, oh, okay, what are you looking for? The officer tells him it's... I think it might be the twenty-two caliber. It's a twenty-two. Yeah, exactly. So it's a relatively small gun, mm -hmm. and Ed was like, "Oh, he had no. bigger guns. He oh, he did mm -hmm. much bigger guns." And Ed was like, "Oh yeah, no big deal. Here you go." Mm -hmm. And the officers like, "Okay, well, here's a potential murderer. We got him off the streets more or less now because we took away his weapon. 
Right. And they were the this, weapon they knew about. Right. But they were this close. There was a body right there. Well, I think we see that across a lot of serial killers. I mean, Dahmer had a what a naked boyfriend per se bleeding from his anus running down the street well, and the police pulled up but he wasn't caught they they gave the guy back to him he wasn't caught oh, that's right that was another yeah. one yeah they're like oh sorry my boyfriend's yeah, a little crazy no, don't I mind know. the blood we'll cover he Dahmer. didn't speak english so like a uh, four part episode that yeah. okay we'll cover that on a different day but yeah, yeah. it's it's common that the the police will have an occasional miss so uh, yeah, here as sure. well they were manipulated by ed all right so back to the evening of 420 1973 april 20th <laughs> i know <laughs> clarnell is snarky to ed he uh, wishes her a good night and clarnell turns off the light and goes to sleep ed walks in strikes her in the head with a hammer a claw hammer of course what other hammer is there ball peen that would be worse that would <laughs> the ball peen hammer that would be worse uh and then cut her throat with a knife yeah as he had with his other victims he decapitated her and for as to his mother mother's decapitated head to perform aramatio on him he also cut off her hands but and we've seen that with him in the past. Yes. We know that he's going to turn himself in, and he knows he's going to turn himself in, so who cares about the hands? Well, it wasn't about identifying. It was more about that the hands and her head and her mouth were, to him, her most identifying features. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So that was his way of really getting the worst of her. Okay. But that's not even... Okay, maybe the the sex with the skull is the worst. But... I don't... But it was... So, again, we're going to get a bit graphic here. I'm assuming that when he's having sex with his mother's head, he's not like, oh, yeah, this is great. I think he's having a moment of rage. I think it's a, I think it's rage. I think it's, it's angry. It's not. He's not. This isn't a soft, cuddly, no, snuggly, no, sexy, this loving. This isn't a romantic, is tender moment. Intense, no. rageful, harsh moment. Well, yeah. He would then... Mount his mother's head on, I think, a bookcase and throw darts at her. Yes. You're getting to my favorite part. Yeah. But I, know I, I mean, am. when I say that, I don't mean that in jest. I, no. I just, I think it's, he went to so such great lengths to defile her. So to further essentially demonstrate his hate for his mother, he removed her larynx, which I'm not even sure if I'd know what a larynx looks like, honestly. It's the vocal cords. I, 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 yeah, but again, I mean, like in that mess of blood and things, I'm not sure how you know. So he he removed her larynx because that was the uh, that was the he felt like that was the source of all the things that she ever said to him. Uh huh. Not her mouth, not her brain, but his her vocal cords, and he just couldn't hear it anymore. He wanted to make sure that nobody ever would again. No, clearly she's dead, so they're not. He put it down the garbage disposal. It wouldn't actually it go would down the garbage disposal. Uh, I've never actually seen vocal cords of the larynx, but they're sinewy. They're sinewy. They're, that's a that's a great description. Like tendon. That's exactly what I was just gonna say. Yeah. Is they're very tendon. Mm -hmm. They're they're spongy. It's not, no, I'm just gonna go with sinewy. Sinewy. Sinewy is like, like yeah, yeah. You know, when things won't won't go down the garbage disposal, when they just get stuck. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. He pulled them out, and I'm not sure what he did with them. Maybe cooked them. 
I'm uh, not sure. Maybe. I think that bit vaguely. Whatever. Yeah. There's nothing worse than putting him in the garbage disposal, so we'll leave no. it at that. Oh, yeah. So, after hiding his mother's body parts, defiling her, so on and so on, he called... This is where, again, I go, okay, Ed, if it's really about your mom, this part would This is happen. it. This is it. Yeah, this is over. Well, it yeah, should be. It, it should be. So, he called his mother's friend, Sally Hallett, and invited her over to the house. Now, I'm not sure. I've never seen him explain why he did that. I've seen him explain how he did it. Then, ultimately, she gets there. He strangles her. And, well, uh, he invited her over for a date night, dinner, and a movie. With him and his mom? Yes. Or just with him? Oh, I'm not really sure. But, I mean, it was his mom's house, and it was his mom's best friend. So but again, like... Nice, cozy night together. I guess, except after he killed his mom, and he says that all this was about his mom. Why did he do anything no, to his... No, there were... Uh, Weirdo. Sally's completely innocent in this whole thing. It's really very tragic. So, he strangles her. He again defiles her he has sex with her over i think a few days um and then he leaves her body in the closet yeah he spent the night with her um one night okay one, it was one, one night in one night in paris with ed no uh but instead of leaving a suicide note he left a, a murder's note kind of leaving bread crumbs for the police. In the note read, at approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do, with three exclamation points. Hmm. That was completely incoherent for a man that's a genius. Well, it sounds like a police report when he first starts it. I mean, it's like approximately 515 yeah, yeah. on no. the day of so-and-so. Yeah. That's, well, maybe that was his topo. It could have been. Huh. Well, this note was obviously written after not only he killed his mom, but also he had sex with her best friend's body and then yep. left her there as well. That's right. Super awesome. So, Kimber fleds, flees, uh, flees the area. He starts his trip um, across the country. He gets to Colorado on April 23rd, so he's been driving for three days. Mm -hmm. Not sure why. Two days. Why did it take so long? Oh, that's right, because his his mom's best friend came over. They spent one day together, so he's two days. But, I mean, why did he take so long to get to Colorado? I mean, Colorado's a thousand miles from here. Yeah, but... 800 Pueblo? I I don't know where Pueblo is. Well, from L.A. to Colorado is 15 hours. Yeah, but Colorado where? Colorado. Boulder? Denver. Denver? Yeah. But where's Pe- Pueblo? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's not very big. I guess so. I guess he may have stopped and had some whatevers. Who knows what Ed was doing. Um, he reached Pueblo, Colorado. On April 23rd, he made a call to the Santa Cruz police to confess his crimes. From what I understand, Ed was upset because nobody noticed <laughs> it's right. Really, he, seriously, he, I mean, nobody he, noticed. Yeah, no, I know. He, like I said, he kind of was leaving breadcrumbs. But no one picked up on him. Yeah. Again, nobody gives a shit about Ed. Ed's no. upset. I'm gonna Poor call him Ed. <laughs> so he calls and confesses so that he can get some attention. This is also, I believe, a big motivator for Ed is that all he really wants is attention. He just he finally... wants someone to pay attention to him. Yes, he does, and he successfully gets that over 
the rest of his years. Oh yeah, yeah. no, no, no. He becomes, as he talks about this, he, completely. He is, he's infamous. Well, but he wanted people to pay attention to him. But again, just like we had with the Casey Anthony case, four calls to the police to report a mysterious package on the side of the road that looked like a dead body. When Ed called, they didn't believe him. They yeah. said call back later. They left it off. He called multiple times. He did. <laughs> they didn't believe him that he was confessing to the murders. What's also crazy about Ed that I just... Uh, um, oh, Ed. Well, he, uh-huh. uh, go ahead. You go. You go well, ahead. I, I, I'm going to collect just, my thoughts about Ed. Right. This is where well, I go I was going to say, once the police finally believed him and brought him into custody... They asked him why he turned himself in because again, no one was looking at Ed. They, they, the one time they questioned him, they got the gun from him and they thought he was off the hook and he was off their radar completely. He said about why he turned himself in. The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at that point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. He got bored. Well, he got bored. And nobody but, noticed. And nobody noticed, but he he didn't have anything left to do. His mom was gone. Yeah. How many? Well, I mean, he's escalated to the point where it's, what else? What else? What else you're could right. he do? He can blow up a building with a bunch of people in it, but yeah. that's not going to. Well, that do, that's he's not going to do it for He's him. run the gamut of yeah, his, no you know, his issues. Right. So ultimately Ed Kemper gets charged with eight counts of first degree murder. He goes on trial in October of 1973. He's found guilty of all the charges because he confessed multiple times. Though his defense was to try and uh, get him found not guilty by reason of mental insanity. Mm -hmm. But of course with his confessions, it didn't go over too well with the jury. Uh, not at the extent that he was able to speak to his crimes and ha- the way that he eloquently described them. Well, certainly. And he was uh, he was analyzed by three court-appointed psychiatrists who found him to be legally sane. Now, you brought up the question before about whether or not he had took a lie detector test. I don't have any information about a lie detector test, but he was given, what is it called? I think, like, pentobarbital truth serum. Mm-hmm. And under truth serum, he admitted that he engaged in cannibalism. Oh. Yes. Oh, he was embarrassed about that before, but all the other stuff that he did was fine? No problem about the rest of it. Oh my god, are you freaking kidding me? He said that he sliced flesh from the legs uh, of his victims, then cooked them and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Trophy. Nonetheless... Of course, the psychiatrist and the jury found him to be completely sane and in full control of all the decisions that he made. What else did they talk to him about when he was under that? Under it was that's of, the only thing. I sodium pentothal is what it is, really, right? I, we probably just made up a whole bunch of things that I don't remember what it is. Pentobarbital, sodium pentothal. Soda, sodium pentothal is definitely what they use. It's already, okay. I yeah, I think you could get that at your dentist. Probably. <laughs> uh, and, once he came out of it, he recanted that he... Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, because that's where he draws the line. Is there documentation of that? 
Well, I mean, I found it. That's the <laughs> so, whole thing. I would love to hear what he oh, talked about. I don't know. About. I would love the that truth. Yeah, the yeah. real truth from Ed Kemper would be so fascinating. Yeah. Because then you sure. can really sift through what's bullshit and what he's using to his own benefit and really get closer to understanding what the real heart of Ed is and what drives him. Oh, absolutely. When Ed, when Ed took the stand, he did say that he did it for himself because it was like a possession. Then he had two beings inhabited in his body. And when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like a blacking out. Ooh, I don't believe it. I don't believe either. it either. I don't, I don't either. I think he's just really good at what he does. I think so too. And I think he probably has a rage, maybe, that he doesn't, that I'm sure he could probably control, but he doesn't want to control it he's never reconciled it no that's true he has not reconciled that rage i mean he had opportunities by talking to people but he utilized those to help he could have utilized the therapy sessions when he was in the mental hospital oh yeah of course instead of using them to manipulate to his own advantage well, that was his growth opportunity. Oh, the yeah, best yeah. education he ever could well, get. Well, he's escalating. Yeah, absolutely. But he was also utilizing the information he had. He was learning. He was, those were skills. His tool bet was growing. Oh, right. I mean, unbelievable. So, Ed Kemper. Well, he, uh, of course, was found guilty. Mm-hmm. He asked for the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But there's a moratorium on the death penalty. He actually asked to be tortured to death. He sure did. That's... I don't even know what that would be. Well, it's a stupid thing to say because he knew there was a moratorium on death penalty. That's true. So he could say whatever he wanted. He could say whatever he wanted. He, so again, he's making himself seem like a martyr. Oh, you should, you know, just torture me. Oh, okay, right, Ed, because you know that could never happen. So he was convicted to seven years to life for each count. Uh, which seven years eight, is the minimum? Yeah, for eight Jesus. counts of murders. I know. Has, is seven years the minimum anywhere anymore for first-degree murder? I don't know. But he was uh, ultimately, uh, he, he is serving his time in what's, and I meant to look this up and I forgot, what's called the California Medical Facility, which is an interesting name because... It's in Bacaville. Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting name for a prison. Is it really a prison or is it a medical prison? Well, that's what I'm not sure, but if he was found, I think it's a medical prison. It might be. It's the same place where, as you mentioned, Herbert Mellon, Charles Manson was there. Yeah. Uh, Which is the right place for Charles Manson, because I think it's clearly apparent that he's mentally ill. Or was. He died. I don't know. I think, Her- I think Charles Manson was fully in control of everything he did. I don't think so. Really? Oh, you I think that Charlie was in control of himself and Ed wasn't? No, no, no. I think they're both in control. I don't, uh, I think Charlie was really good at manipulating as, I mean, again, that's another episode, but Charlie was very much mistreated by his mother. His mother was a prostitute. She had sex in front of him. He was molested. Yeah. So on and so on and so on. If I'm not mistaken, they didn't find Charlie very useful in the study that they, like they did with Ed. I don't think so. Because he just sounds like a crazy man. No, but. (laughs) He likes it. He's playing with him. Yes, he did. Ed Ed wanted to cooperate because it would get him something. It would benefit him. It would get him um, a friendship with these people and and to stay close to them. Here we are 45 years later, 47 years later, whatever it is, and there's a huge TV show, Mindhunter, again, 
all sorts of plugs because we freaking love this show. We do love Mindhunter. And he's the unsung star of it. Mackenzie. I think he's the sung star of it, if you ask me. I mean, I think a lot of people constantly look to, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts. And many people I talk to about Mindhunter really love that because of that connection you have with him immediately. Instantly. It's endearing. It's hypnotic almost. I mean, honestly, when you and I were preparing for this and I realized that I was still alive, you know how easy it would be to communicate with Ed Kemper? Oh, well, maybe. But he uh, he had he a just stroke. Send him a, few, a letter. Well, but he had a stroke a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what his capacity is currently. Mental or physical? Both. Honestly, a guy that size living that long is pretty phenomenal because their heart. It just takes so much for their body to do. It, it does. It's he's a about, lot of work to keep that body alive. It's true. He's about and he's overweight right now. Yeah. Couple things to to tie this up. Uh, Ed found a new muse in prison in Herbert Mullen. <laughs> he was a uh, uh, Herbert was a foot shorter than Ed, actually fourteen inches. Aww. So Ed would just constantly pick on him. Baby Bjorn with Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> that would be adorable. That's a picture. He would uh, sing to him, and or I'm sorry, Herbert would sing, and Ed would throw water on him. <laughs> So he was just a Laurel and Hardy. He was just a bully. Funny bunch. But uh, I think they compared notes. They overlapped. They did overlap. Yeah. But uh, Ed. So of course we talked about John Douglas, the FBI profiler, who who called Ed one of the brightest he's ever met. I don't know when John started with Ed. I think it was maybe late seventies, early eighties. But Ed started out early booking other patients' appointments with the prison psychiatrist. So he essentially picked <laughs> picked up right where he left off when he left the psychiatric hospital in the when he was twenty one. Well, again, remember there are ten thousand audiobooks out there in the world that likely still exist the majority of them where you can listen to ed i think that if i'm not mistaken he read the audiobook flowers in the attic which is a horror that horror, a horror, horror book horrible story about people i think who were locked in the attic if i'm not mistaken well they're, they're locked in the attic they're uh i think tortured by their grandmother yeah, they're children one. yeah yeah they're children that are tortured in the attic interesting choice yeah no i know read by ed kemper i know it's a fascinating story all right scarlet fans so this is sonia and Brittany. That's been a, that was, I didn't think there was going to be this much to unravel. I thought Ed Kemper was really straightforward. No. We, not at all. No. Well, he, uh, I mean, he, I think there would be a lot less if he didn't talk so much about himself. But, you know, we apparently want to listen. We apparently do. He's content where he's at. He had a stroke four years ago. He frequently waves his right to parole. Uh, even the parole board, when he has to go in front of it, says no way, which is a good thing. Yeah. So he's he's in his early seventies now. Who knows how much longer he's going to be around? But man, he's he's a unique guy. He's a unique guy. I'm going to send him a little note. I'll let everybody know if I hear from him. But I'm sure he's got a little time on his hands. If he can still write, he might send me a note back. Okay. Yeah. Who knows if if he still has that capability. He probably kind of has a, a fan club going. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, absolutely. And with Mindhunter and the popularity oh, yeah, yeah, of Mindhunter, yeah, yeah. I think it's more than ever. Because 
to think that you could still have access to communication with him, it's fascinating. It's super fascinating. It must keep him very busy. Well, I gotta be perfectly honest with you. When we decided to do this, I actually thought about, like, writing to him just because I thought he was so fascinating. It wasn't until I saw his interviews and how manipulative he was, like, no, not interested. Yeah. I don't want to touch that with the 50-foot pole. Yeah. No, you don't want to become one of no one of those folks. I think I would probably. I, I honestly, I probably will send him a note, but I'm not interested in talking with him. And I, uh, that's the part where it would get into your brain a bit. Sure, but um, you know, like I said, uh, interesting things happen when uh, communication opens up. So I'll let every all of our Scarlet fans know what happens. We're gonna we're gonna probably call it a wrap on episode four. Again, thanks all our listeners. Keep we, listening. Please we, subscribe. We hope you enjoyed us. Yeah, please subscribe. Uh, check us out on Twitter, where we will uh, try to send out some clips of Ed Kemper from Kemper on Kemper. There's also a fascinating documentary done in 1991 when he was a little bit older, and I think he was able to hone in on his craft on telling his story. Uh, so we'll see if we can send some of those out. But hit us up at, uh, on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast. Shoot us an email at uh, scarletmurderpodcast at gmail.com. We're looking for, at least I'm looking for, some kind of sign-off. So if you have suggestions, let us know. Might make for a good t-shirt someday. Exactly. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Scarlet fans.